So if you've got your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. We're going to be, um, our text this evening is going to be verses 17 through 34. So again, 1 Corinthians 11, 17 through 34. So the Apostle Paul writes, But in the following instructions I do not commend you, because when you come together it is not for the better but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part, for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. When you come together, it is not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will not. For I receive from the Lord what I also deliver to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which, on the night when he was betrayed, took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he took, also took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the, this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body eats and drinks judgment on himself. That is why many of you are weak and ill. And some have died. But if we judged ourselves truly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brothers, when you eat, when you come to eat, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About the other things, I will give direction when I come. So let's go to the Lord in prayer as part of our Thanksgiving prayer uh, today. Um, I'm going to read a, a selection from the Valley of Vision, and that's going to be part of our, our prayer. So if you just bow your heads, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Oh, my God, thou fairest, greatest, first of all objects, my heart admires, adores, loves thee. For my little life is as full as it can be. And I would pour out all that fullness before thee in ceaseless flow. When I think upon and converse with thee, 10,000 delightful thoughts spring up. 10,000 sources of pleasure are unsealed. 10,000 refreshing joys spread over my heart, crowding into every moment of happiness. I bless thee, Lord, for the soul that thou hast created, for adorning it, sanctifying it, for the body that thou hast given me, for preserving its strength and vitality, for providing senses to enjoy delights, for hands, eyes, ears that do thy bidding, for thy royal bounty provided for my daily support, for a full table, 
and an overflowing cup. For appetite, for taste, for sweetness, for the joys of relatives and friends, for ability to serve others, for a heart that feels sorrows and necessities, for a mind to care for my fellow man, for opportunities of spreading happiness around, for loved ones in the joys of heaven, for my own expectation of seeing thee clearly. I love thee above the powers of language to express for what thou art to thy creatures. Increase my love, O my God, through time and through eternity. Father, we are also thankful for your word. We are thankful that we have this objective witness that we can turn to, to know you, to know ourselves, and to know Jesus Christ and his gospel. And as we open your word tonight and we, and we learn of the, the beauty and, um, the symbolism, God, the unifying practice that is the Lord's Supper, we ask that you would convict our hearts by your word. God, that we would see um, the places that we fall short, the places where our attitudes um, are not in keeping with your word. And God, that you would, by your word, conform us to the image of your son. Uh, make us more like him. Make us care about the things that he cares about. Um, make us love the things that he loved. Let us be focused on the things that he is focused on. Let us have the right thoughts and attitudes towards the things um, that he has demonstrated a right attitude towards. We thank you. We praise you. We ask these things in Jesus name. Amen. All right. So um, we come to this, we come to the Lord's Supper and we're going to just talk about, um, to be honest, the reason why I wanted to talk about the Lord's Supper tonight was just tying into sort of that, that theme of, of the Thanksgiving feast and the idea of coming to um, a table of Thanksgiving and sort of bringing those ideas to bear. And there's a lot that we could talk about when it comes to the Lord's Supper. The Lord's Supper is a big topic. It is, it has vertical and horizontal elements. It has external significance to, to the church and internal significance um, for us as individual believers in terms of what it expresses, what it symbolizes, um, and gives opportunity towards the way we relate to our relationship with God, our fellowship with the church, our, our personal faithfulness and honesty before God, as well as our witness and testimony to the world. And so the Lord's Supper, you could say, carries a lot of weight. Um, in a lot of ways. Sometimes it is de-emphasized in the church, but I think I've shared with you before that when it came to the Reformation, and so as all the different factions of the Reformation were getting together and trying to say, can't we be on the same page um, about uh, the, the, the life of the church and this Reformation movement, the thing that ended up making them break fellowship, the thing that they couldn't agree on was the Lord's Supper. And that was the piece that, that it fell, made it fall apart. Um, and, and so many times people will come to it and say, man, it just, just doesn't seem like the Lord's Supper should be the kind of thing that would, would break that fellowship and agreement that they would have. But the reality is, is, is the Lord's Supper is a weighty thing. Um, and it carries a lot of weight, uh, in the faith. And so w- w- there's lots of different sort of names, um, that we talk about the, the, the Lord's Supper in. And most of those are connected with a certain theology about the Lord's Supper. So we use the word sort of interchangeably, but the truth is 
that's probably not helpful in a lot of ways because it implies things about the, the, what we believe about the Lord's Supper that may or may not be accurate. And so you've probably heard many of those words that we, we sometimes call, uh, in the Protestant church, the Lord's Supper an ordinance of the church. It's also sometimes called communion, um, the Eucharist, uh, the, it's a sacrament. So all these words have different connotations. And the truth is, is that we get sort of lazy and we use those, those words interchangeably, but I'm going to try to stick to the word ordinance for, for the context of our study tonight. But if, if that, just know that that's what I mean when I say that, because you may be used to calling it something different. You may be used to calling it communion or a sacrament or, or, or even the Eucharist, Eucharist if you're from a, a higher church tradition possibly. So, but what we're going to do is kind of go through that section that we just read in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And, and talk about some of the things that it points to about the, the need, necessity, uh, the, the symbolism and, and how all of these things play out in the life of the church. So let's begin with, with at the beginning in verse 17. What does the Lord's Supper do in the life of the church? Well, for one, it is an opportunity to express unity in the church. Right? That's, that's where we'll begin. It's an opportunity to express unity in the church. So again, in verse 17, but in the following instruction, I do not commend you because when you come together, it is not for the better, but for the worse. For in the first place, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And I believe it in part for there must be factions among you in order that those who are genuine among you may be recognized. All right. So this is what you may or may not already know. The, the Corinthian church, the church in Corinth is the problem church of the New Testament. Okay. It is the church that has all of the goofy, broken nonsense going on at. We just finished Philippians where Paul is like, I love you guys and you've been so helpful and we're so close. And then Corinthians is like, what am I going to do with you guys? Okay. The interesting thing is, is they're both still God's church. They are both God's people. You just got one group that is living in, in sinful and unhelpful ways. And you've got one church that seems to be more faithfully following. Um, but the church of Corinth is dealing with multiple scandals, multiple failures, multiple divisions. And Paul talks about this issue, the issues that are at play when they come together as a church in general, but with special significance of when they come to the church for the Lord's Supper. So we are, I've said this to you before, we are not positive how all of this plays out. But what we think is the case is this, that in, in the first century church, probably, the church would gather together on the Lord's Day morning, on Sunday morning, for a time of teaching and worship and 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 things like that, right? What we would probably think of is typically a church service. And then they would come back in the evening and have a second time uh, that was a fellowship gathering where there would be a meal. And then as part of that meal, there would be the, the piece that would, that would be symbolically the Lord's Supper, but probably part of an actual, um, what, what they would call love feasts, right? That they would come, which was a weird word to the first century world. They were like, what are y'all doing? Yeah, love feasts. What are you talking about? Um, they would have these feasts at, 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 in the evenings. And then eventually what happened is as the church changed and grew over time, those two services sort of joined each other. It's part of the reason we think why in many um, churches, the Lord's Supper seems like it is just added to the end of the service in a way. Um, and so because there are actually two different services, there's there's the service of the word and the service of the table. 
But those are all generalizations, and we don't know for sure because we don't just have great um, accounts of those early years. But Paul says, when the Corinthians come together, it's no longer beneficial. It's not actually a good thing that they're getting together, um, but it's actually a detriment to the church. Why? Because of the disunity that, that this church has. The supper, the Lord's Supper, is supposed to be a depiction and an expression of the church's unity. So that's the first thing. When we come together at the table, it is supposed to be a picture of the unity of the church. You get to share in the supper because you were in agreement with the church, unified under its belief and unified with Christ. What that means particularly is something I mentioned again a couple of weeks ago, is that while baptism is sort of the the initiating ordinance into the church. It's the thing that you, that, that guards the entrance into the church. The Lord's Supper is to guard against you being goofy once you are actually in the church. So you might say it's a, not an initiating ordinance, but a sustaining kind of ordinance. And so many churches have used it as essentially like a blessing of accountability in a way. It is a moment for us to all be accountable to each other about what we think and what we believe and how we are living our Christian lives. And so if you are out of regular fellowship with a church, sometimes because of maybe something like unexcused absences over a significant period of time, um, or you are under church discipline, then in many contexts, you were excluded from the supper because that was demonstrating something. It was saying, um, you are out of unity with this church because of your lack of participation or because of this sin issue that we're trying to work out. And so since you are out of unity with the church, you cannot be a part of this symbol of unity until you are back in, in right relationship to the church. And so Paul says, I hate that there are factions among you I want you to be unified, but the reality is, is there has to be factions among you because some of you are completely living in godless and unbelieving ways. And so we have to make a distinction between these two groups of people. We can't just keep on pretending like we're all on the same page and all living um, faithfully when some of you are not doing that. So he says this as a first instance is a, a picture of unity. And I'm going to come back to that at the end and talk about how that has that plays out in the life of our church because I have a little bit of a, there, there's a, there's a tension there with the way that we do the Lord's Supper and the way I think about the Lord's Supper, but we'll come back to that in just a little bit. Okay. So not only about unity of the, of the church, but about fellowship of the church. Verse 20, he says, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. For in eating, each one goes ahead with his own meal. One goes hungry, another gets drunk. What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you do you despise the church of God and humiliate those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I commend you in this? No, I will, will not. And then he skips down, or I'm going to skip down to verse 33, where he says, So then, my brothers, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. If anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, so that when you come together, it will not be for judgment. About these other things, I will give directions when I come. So it's not just a picture of unity and belief and conviction in unity and covenant of the church, but also the sweetness of the fellowship that the people in the church have, that they know and that they love each other, because those are different things, right? We can be unified and on the same page about stuff and still not know each other, 
still not be close to each other, still not have that warmth of fellowship with each other. But the Lord's Supper is supposed to depict both of those things, unity and fellowship. We talk about the sharing of a meal with others in our church often. As we talk, we say, hey, you know, I, I encourage you guys to invite people into your homes, to, to have meals with them, to go out to dinner with people, to have them over to your home for dinner. Because we recognize something. There is something strange that happens, something that I think is is supernatural might be a little too strong a word, but maybe not. There's something that's supernatural that happens when we share a meal with other people. Um, there is a there is a, a a closeness and an openness that that comes from those things, and I think they are it is a good and 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 it's sort of a common grace that God has given to all of humanity, right? It's just something that happens when we share um, meals with each other. That's part of the reason why so many cultures are very strict about who you're allowed to share a meal with. Because they recognize that closeness and, and familial friendship almost. The Lord's Supper was perhaps, like we said, an actual fellowship meal, not just a symbolic meal, but a real meal. And then over time, it slowly became more of just a symbolic meal. But friends and brothers and sisters were at one point sharing a meal together. Um, and whether that is symbolic or literal, it's it's still central to what's going on. So as an example, we just came off of Thanksgiving. My family has always done sort of big family gatherings um, at the holidays, at Christmas, at uh, uh, Thanksgiving, at Easter, at Fourth of July, typically. Um, growing up. You know, you would have these meetings and you've got parents and grandparents and aunts and uncles and cousins and a few second cousins and great aunts and uncles and all that. And so it would be typical to have these meetings where you would have 20 or 20 plus 30 people um, at them. We also, when I was a kid, man, we would have multiple family reunions a year. And so it would be dad's family and this part of mom's family and the other part of mom's family. And, and we would have these big family gatherings every year. That's a picture of the idea of what's going on with the fellowship of the meal is that we are all coming together to share in this family kind of picture. I hope that you think of each other in that way. I hope that you think of each other not as just people who attend the same church, not even just as friends, but as people who are family and join together weekly for a family dinner. And that family dinner dinner is the Lord's Supper. Now, here's an interesting thing that's going on, and it's probably that the language and the situation is a little bit nebulous. We don't know exactly what's going on, but I think this is a picture of what it is. So we have come here tonight, and, and we're worshiping together, um, and we're going to share in the Lord's Supper here in a minute. But what if this was the case? What if when you came to church on a Sunday evening, we had different seating areas based on income? All right. So what if you came to church and if you were of a certain income class, you had cushioned seats and maybe you had some catered snacks and you had some attendants who were coming around or whatever. But that was only for certain people. Everybody else would have to sit in the other section where where none of those things were available. So people of lesser income or social class or or racial identity or you could pick any kind of thing to prejudice had to sit in more humble circumstances. Well, I think the case would be this, is when we would come together for church, 
it would be hard to feel a lot of fellowship with the people who were sitting on the other side of the aisle, right? It just would. If you're sitting over here in the cheap seats um, and then you've got these people who are like, well, these things are only for us, then it would be hard to feel a, a closeness of fellowship. Probably something like that is happening in the church in Corinth, is the rich are coming early and having these feasts with the food that they have brought that is of, in keeping with the, the, the lifestyle that they have and the money that they have. And they're having these big feasts. And then the poor people show up and they don't have any of that. So they have to sit off to the side and, and wait on the rich to do their thing while the poor don't experience that. I don't know about you, but I, I've certainly experienced this at times in my life where I've had groups of friends who just made more money than I did. Okay. And they were always wanting to do things that cost a lot more money than I had. And so I had a certain group of friends in college that, that man, they were like, it was like every other weekend they were going, let's go to Atlanta or let's go skiing or let's go to the beach or let's travel to this place or whatever. And I was like, guys, like I'm eating ramen and Rice Krispies for every meal currently, right? I've got no bandwidth. I've got no margin to go and, and, and do these things with you. But guess what that did? Guess how it affected the friendship? Little by little, me and those people just kind of drifted apart, right? Of course we did because I couldn't participate in the things that they participate, participated in. Their hobbies, their habits began to just be things that I couldn't um, stay up with. There's, there's a picture of that in the Lord's table, right? As the table has become more symbolic, we don't feel the, the level of that. But the Lord's table is supposed to be a place where all people come who are in the fellowship of faith and are equal at a level, right? We are all welcome. We are all family. We are all provided for. And those things that would separate us out in the world, those things of, of wealth or class or, or culture or all those things, those things are supposed to fall apart in the church at a level. Man, it's a beautiful thing. And, and, and we should be honest. You don't see this all the time. Lots of times you see poor churches and rich churches. You see inner city churches and you see country churches. You see, um, you know, blue collar churches and you see white collar churches, but it is a beautiful thing. When a church is multi, uh, class, right? Multi, um, uh, socioeconomic class. When you see brothers and sisters of, of great means and lesser means worshiping together and coming together in fellowship, that's what the table is also supposed to represent. And it's what's not going on, um, in, in Corinth. Okay. So now starting with, those are two practical things that have to do with the way the supper is a picture for the body. It's, it's the way we relate to each other. It's a picture of our unity. It's a picture of our fellowship. But starting in verse 23, it begins to shift to where it's pointing towards the symbolic remembrance of Christ's life and death. All right. So those are both realities. There's something going on among us at a horizontal level at the table. There's also something going on at a vertical level when we're talking about Christ. So verse 23 is where that begins. And this is the passage that I need not remind you of because we repeat these words every week here. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, 
Also, he took the cup after the supper, saying, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So the supper is not only about fellowship, but it is a depiction of the truth of the gospel itself. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we are declaring the gospel. That the body of Christ was broken for you. That the blood of Christ was shed for you. That the wrath of God that you deserved was poured out on the Son of God in his bleeding and brokenness so that it would not be poured out on you. Right? Every single week we celebrate that. Every single week we declare that. Jesus specifically mentions that concept in that passage of this is the covenant, this is the new covenant in my blood. That Jesus' sacrifice inaugurates the new covenant. It establishes the covenant with those who have received him by faith. Okay, That's what we are remembering and celebrating and declaring every single time we take the Lord's Supper. Hebrews 9 reminds us that the covenant always requires blood. Always. And we are reminded of that each week. Therefore, not even the first covenant was inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment of the law has been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people saying, this is the blood of the covenant that God made for you. And in the same way, he sprinkled with the blood both the tent and all the vessels used in worship. Indeed, under the law, almost everything is purified with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. That's the reality. So every single time we take the Lord's Supper, we are remembering that our forgiveness was bought at the cost of Jesus' blood. And that is what unifies us, and that is what gives us fellowship with each other. The cross is at the very center of our faith, and we rehearse the cross every week. That's We remember every single week that the cross is at the center. That's why, what are we remembering? We're remembering that this is not just a social club. This is not a philanthropic society. We are not a political party. We are a blood-bought, covenantal bride of Christ. And we have this sustaining ordinance every single week to remind us of that fact. We need to be reminded of that fact because here's the truth. Most of us will forget it before we get out of here tonight. You will remember it in the service. And by the time you get your kids in the car or whatever, you will already have a different mindset about the world and who you are and what's important and what tomorrow is going to look like and how you are going to live your life. And so we repeat it every week because we need to be reminded every single week. I've said to you many times, one of the reasons I think it is beneficial to do the Lord's Supper every week is because it is a proclamation of the gospel. There are many times where I may preach a certain passage and the truth is, the God, much like we did last week, what did we say? It seems as if in general, in the gospel, I mean, in the epistle to the Philippians, the, the, the gospel, the cross is assumed. And he's writing to a people who he knows know the gospel already. And now he's saying, now how do we live that out? 
sometimes I preach messages like that. Probably oftentimes I preach messages, messages like that. If we're in a sanctification kind of passage, then I end up preaching a sanctification kind of message. But sometimes in the process of that, the, the core explicit gospel of Jesus' death on the cross for us gets not emphasized. But when we do the Lord's Supper every week, every single week, the cross and Jesus' sacrifice is emphasized. That's why we do it. You'll, you'll hear this. You might hear it from the mother church. You might hear it from another congregation. Well, uh, I just, I don't know. Uh, we don't do the Lord's Supper every week. It seems like it would just be less special if we just did it every week. And I'm like, the gospel is less special if you remember it every week. That seems counterintuitive to the way I read the Bible. No, the gospel should be the thing that I remind. I wouldn't have a problem if we did the Lord's Supper every day. Um, if we came and met for a, for a, a meeting every morning and had the Lord's Supper every, every morning. The gospel should be repeated and it's why we do the Lord's Supper each week because it reminds us of the cross. Okay. But, and here's, and here's an added piece to that. It is not just the proclamation of the gospel, but that proclamation comes in a certain context. And that context is, we proclaim the gospel each week through the supper in anticipation of Jesus' imminent return. That's the next thing that it reminds us of. We see that in one single verse, in verse 26. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until when? Until he comes. Jesus says at the at the the first institution of the Lord's Supper, I will not drink this cup again with you until we drink it anew in my Father's kingdom. He's saying, I want you guys to keep on remembering it, but I won't drink it with you until I come back again one day. But I'm coming back again one day. So here's a, here's a neat idea for you. The Lord's Supper every single Sunday is an Advent kind of observance. We're about to enter the season of Advent coming up next week. It's the first Sunday of Advent. We celebrate Advent every single week as we celebrate the Lord's Supper because we are remembering each week that Jesus is coming back and that we should be ready for that. Think about this. I, I just thought it was an interesting thing as, as we think about the words that are so commonplace to us that we say each week and maybe we don't stop to think about their significance. Each week we, we recite this same thing and they are the word, we call them the words of institution. We are instituting the supper, right? There are numerous things, very important things, central things to the Christian faith that we could say. We could say, Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ is co-eternal with the Father. Christ was born of a virgin. Christ lived a sinless life. Christ is ascended to the right hand of the Father. But we don't say any of those things. What do we say? Christ has died. Christ has risen. Christ will come again. That is the emphasis of the supper. We remember his death and resurrection, but we remember his return. And so each week we are celebrating Advent. We are celebrating the waiting on the return of Jesus Christ. So one last thing, and this again shifts it back. So if the first two things we talked about are horizontally focused, and then the next two, in a sense, are 
vertically focused, although certainly they are a declaration to the world as well, this last one, in a sense, becomes internally focused as we take the Lord's Supper. Because the last reason why we take it, or at least in this passage why we take it, is it's an opportunity for self-examination. As a function of all these things, this final function um, points to accountability. It points to self-examination. And the language is strong, and the consequences are stark, as you probably noticed as we were reading it. Verse 27, whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. I don't want to be guilty concerning the body and blood of the Lord. That doesn't sound like something Paul is encouraging. Let a person examine himself then, and so eat the bread and drink the cup. For anyone who eats and drinks without discerning the body, eats and drinks judgment upon himself. And those are stark words. And we should not look at those things and just sort of say, ah, that's a bunch of old silliness. That's a bunch of superstitious kind of thinking about these things. What is going on in the supper is significant. I'll tell you what, and, and I've seen this even recently. There was a, there was a deal a couple of weeks ago. Um, it was not on Maribel Speaks Out. Uh, it was on, uh, newcomers to Maribel, right? It's just this little group on whatever. And most of it's new people to Maribel and they're, they're commenting on things that they need to know about Maribel or whatever. But this one person, uh, commented on newcomers to Maribel and they said something to the effect of this. Um, we went to this church this morning and I cannot, what's the opposite of recommend? I cannot tell you not to go to that church more affirmatively, right? Do not go to this church. And let me tell you why, because we went to that church and can you believe that they would not allow us to take the Lord's Supper? Me and my mom went there and we were guests and they would not allow us to take the Lord's Supper. I don't know if you've noticed this. People get offended all the time about being able to take the Lord's Supper or not. You hear Christians talk about it. I remember in in college, I had friends who were uh, Roman Catholic. And like there was always this sort of like muttering discussion about people being like, well, you know, over their church, they won't let you take the Lord's Supper. If you're a Protestant, you got to be a Catholic to take the Lord's Supper in the Catholic church. And there was just this. And people are offended by it. It's like, how dare you tell me that I can't take the Lord's Supper at your church? They're offended when their children can't take the Lord's Supper. They're offended when their non-believing friends can't take uh, the Lord's Supper. They're offended when their nominally believing family members come into town and can't take the Lord's Supper. Um, They're uh, offended when their friend who has come with them to church that day from a different denomination um, is not allowed to take the Lord's Supper. I'm going to be honest with you. I love it every time I go to a church and they tell me I can't take the Lord's Supper. I love it. I think it's awesome. And you're like, Ash, that seems like a weird thing to say, right? This is the reason why I love it, because it shows that, man, these people at least are taking this seriously. They may be wrong about the strictures that they put in. And they may not even be the same things that I do at our church, which obviously in some ways they aren't. But man, it at least means that these people are saying, what we're doing here is serious. This is not a joke. And your safety is in danger. I'm trying to protect you from death. 
So we're going to ask that you don't take the Lord's Supper. I had a very dear friend who was Lutheran, and every time we would go, uh, we couldn't take the Lord's Supper at his church, right? Because we were not Lutheran and we were not part of his church. And so he, uh, we wouldn't take it. And I was like, amen, good for you. Thank you for not letting me take the Lord's Supper. Paul says, that's why many of you are weak and ill and some of you have died. Isn't it gonna be crazy when we get to heaven one day and we find out that we had loved ones who died in this life? Because they took the Lord's Supper in an improper way. You might say, I, that can't be right. No, they, they got cancer or they got sick or they got, they did this other thing. Maybe, or maybe that was ultimately the cause of these things. You say, Ash, you're, you're, you're getting me freaked out. Like I don't want to walk around walking on eggshells every time we take the Lord's Supper. Like I'm afraid I'm going to get sick because of it. I don't want you to feel that way, but I do want you to know this. The Lord's Supper is dangerous. You can read that passage and, and, and discount it because it's superstitious, superstitious or overly spiritualized or something like that. But I think you do that to your own peril. Because it's telling us to take the Lord's Supper seriously. And, and, and there's three phrases that he kind of uses there. He says, be careful. There are those people who eat and drink it in an unworthy manner. A person who doesn't examine himself before he eats it and the person who drinks it without discerning the body. So what do all those things mean? Because now perhaps you were appropriately freaked out and you're like, man, Ash, I don't even know if I should take the Lord's Supper. I don't want to mess this up in some way. So what does that mean? Well, I think the context of the earlier passage is the explanation to it. If we come to the supper, not realizing what it is for, not realizing what it symbolizes, and therefore acting in a disrespectful way, we do wrong. The church at Corinth is greedily eating the food in exclusion of other people. They are basically making it an opportunity for segregation of the congregation, for exclusion of the congregation across illegitimate lines. And that's the key. Because here's the deal. Don't misunderstand me. The supper is always exclusionary. It excludes Lots of people from the supper. It invites certain people in and it keeps certain people out. The important question for us is what are the reasons for the exclusion? Why would we keep somebody from the Lord's Supper? Well, it shouldn't be about wealth or class or race or background. Those are illegitimate reasons to exclude somebody. But do you come to the table in faith and in repentance? Those are legitimate reasons to exclude somebody from the table. Yes, it is a table for sinners because we are all sinners, but it is a table for repentant sinners who have trusted in Christ alone for their salvation. We, we, we use a word for this in, in the church, and you've heard me use the word probably before. Um, it's called fencing the table. We do something before we talk about the Lord's Supper. We try to put some warnings up and guards against someone taking the supper thoughtlessly. And so there's verbiage in our bulletin. You know, you may have be so familiar with our bulletin that you never even pay attention. There's a little write-up there that talks about the fact that the supper is for those who have repented, trusted in Christ, and been baptized. You might think, well, why do, why do we say that every time? 
Ash. Like, why do you, why do you make some comment about that every single time? Because let's be honest, man, it is a little bit off. If you're here and you're a non-believer, if you're here and, and you do not fall into that category, you can't help but a little bit feel singled out. I recognize that. In honesty, I'm a little bit trying to single you out, though not in a bad way. I'm not trying to be hateful, but I am trying to sort of say, I want you to be, I want you to understand what's going on here. This is something that you need to consider um, before you come up here. And so the reality is, and this is what I was referencing earlier that we were going to come back to, I am torn a little bit between truths. Because I want to, I want to fence the table, but I don't want to fence it so much that those who are actually followers of Jesus Christ who have trusted in him and been baptized and repented of their sin, that they are um, kept from the blessing and the grace that is for all people who are in Christ. So I don't want to withhold something from a real believer because I think something important is going on here. But at the same time, um, I don't want to, I don't want to withhold anything, but I don't want to just open these gates wide because I don't think it's for everybody. So it becomes a moment for all of us to look at our lives. I shared a couple of weeks ago that many churches will read their church covenant before they come to the Lord's Supper table. Why? It's an opportunity for us all. We don't do that. We sort of add our church covenant in as part of our weekly reading in, in the course of the liturgy. But why do they do that? So that we would all stop for a minute and say, man, am I living this way? I say I trust in Christ. I say my life is devoted to him. I say I am walking by the spirit and not by the flesh. But am I? Am I being faithful to these things? It's it's a time for us to examine our own lives and to reaffirm our faith. At several points during our service, that's what we want you to do. The idea is for you to stop for a second, to put the brakes on something. We were talking about it in our group meeting tonight about so many churches will, will talk about how do we build emotion into something? How do we, um, uh, uh, orchestrate the service to to crescendo at a certain point and to emote something and then bring people back around and bring them up and then drop them down and, and do all these things, right? And, and there's a level at which you can't help but do that or whatever. But there's also a sense that I want to put up almost like locked doors in our service. Like I want you to be going along and you're just singing and, and worshiping the Lord. And all of a sudden you're like, Oh, I, I can't get through here for some reason. Why can't I get through here? I need to stop for a second and consider why this door is locked. I need to stop and consider um, before I get swept along in something, I need to stop and think about what I'm actually doing here and why uh, I'm doing these things. Okay, that's part of why we have a creed every week, because we want to stop and with our own mouths in community say, we believe these things. And the Lord's Supper is another moment to do that, to stop and say, do I really believe these things? Am I in community with these people around me? Am I living in right relationship with them, in love, in unity, in fellowship? Because if not, then what am I doing here? Like, why am I here? Paul says in verse 31 to close, if we judged ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged by the Lord, we are disciplined so that we may not be condemned along with the world. 
the Lord's Supper is a moment for us to pause and make sure that we are judging ourselves rightly to the best of our abilities. And the Lord is using that so that as we are disciplined in this life, we would not be condemned in the world to come. So if we are in sin or unbelief, then the supper is our accountability partner, you could say, that asks us hard questions so that we don't just continue to live a lie. And that's the big picture of it. Now, is that all there is to the Lord's Supper? No, there are other things that we could talk about. We didn't even get into the talk about about what is it actually, um, is, is it a means of grace? Um, the church has disagreed with that over the course of history. Is, is this the, uh, we didn't talk about the, is this the actual body of Jesus or the spiritual body of Jesus or the symbolic body of Jesus? Although probably from the way I'm talking, you can guess what, um, we may believe on those things. Those are things for other passages. But that's not what Paul gets into in First Corinthians. That's not his, that is not his worry. He's not, not, let's give you a theology lesson per se about what's going on in the Lord's Supper, but let's talk about how it works in the life of the church and how we, how it, uh, is used each week as, as we share in this. So, um, we'll close on that. Um, I, I've done a, a sermon of like, about this a couple of different times because I just want to remind us every once in a while of, of what's going on and how we um, address these things um, and why we do our services the way we do because I recognize that sometimes people may come and go, well, that's weird and I don't know why they do things that way. Um, maybe you'll be able to say, well, here's why we do things that way. And this is why we do the Lord's Supper the way we do. So let's go to the Lord in prayer. Um, thank him for his goodness. Um, ask him to bless um, our church and the churches of our community. Um, and, and Cheetah will come and close us. Father God, we thank you for this day. God, we thank you again for, um, all your many blessings. God, we, we pray and ask your, um, goodness, your blessing, your provision on the churches of our community. God, we ask that you would help the gospel go forth as your spirit moves around, um, in our community, as your spirit God goes before us to, to till up the hard earth of people's hearts, um, as your spirit goes before us, um, to bring the growth, um, as, as the spiritual seed is planted in people's lives. God, we ask that you would work a great, uh, and mighty work even in our own time, that we would uh, experience a time of revival in our own community, that we would see the lost come to know Jesus Christ, that we would see um, the nominal um, become committed followers of Jesus. God, that we would see the the people who are who are on the cusp of of following Jesus faithfully. God, that they would step in, um, and that you would change their hearts, that they would be saved, that they would be converted. God, and that they would live in holy lives. Father, we ask that we would be attentive when we come to our worship each week. God, it is easy for us to do things by, by, um, habit, um, by a sense almost of, of, of rote kind of memory. God, to just go through the motions and do these things because they're the things that we do, uh, every single week. And yet, God, we ask that you would bring these things to mind, that you would bring 1 Corinthians 11 to mind. Um, each week as we celebrate the supper, God, as we, as we express our unity and fellowship with each other, as we remember the cross of Jesus Christ and, and his imminent coming, God, and as we recommit our lives to you as we come to your table, we thank you, we praise you.
We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen.
Amen. Uh, good to see you tonight. Glad you're here. Um, we begin our Advent season next week. And so, um, hope you can be with us during Advent as we lead up to, um, uh, the celebration of Christmas and a special year because Christmas Eve falls on a Sunday. And so I always think that's cool when Christmas Eve or Christmas Day actually fall on a Sunday. And so, um, that's just a little special added blessing for us, right? Um, let me ask you if you'll do something real quick, um, before we leave. So when we close tonight, if you wouldn't mind, so I, I know a lot of people are trying to get home and you got little ones that have got to get to bed and stuff like that. Um, but if you could, if everybody could help, um, tear down and get straightened up for just like five or 10 minutes, um, Aaron's going to be over there. She's not going anywhere. You're not holding her up because she's here till seven and so seven fifteen. So if you just like spend about five or 10 minutes, um, because if we got 30 people, Doing it will we'll be done in about five or ten minutes. And if we um, if we all get out of here and there's only five or six of us doing it, then it'll take 30 minutes to do. So if you wouldn't mind helping us out with that, just kind of um, we know you got to get home, but but we'll kind of get that, try to get it all finished up real quick or at least the bulk of it. Cool. Thank you for that. Um, uh, hope you have a great week. Um, hear this benediction as you go. May the Lord bless you and keep you. Make his face shine upon you and be gracious to you. Turn his face towards you and give you peace. We'll see you next week.